You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, came out with a new study uh, just a couple weeks ago and there was one really interesting finding in the study that leapt out at me and a lot of other people in the morbidity and mortality weekly report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, dated April 8, 2014. If you want to look it up, the title of the study is Vital Signs, Births to Teens Aged 15 to 17 Years, United States, 1991 to 2012. And the really interesting bit of data in here as far as I'm concerned is this, 83% of teenagers said that they were already having sex. They were already sexually active before they had any sex education in school. A lot of these kids get no sex education in school or they get abstinence-only sex education. Mississippi is my current favorite abstinence-only state because not only do they teach abstinence-only, they also, mandated by law, sex ed teachers in Mississippi, required to tell students that gay sex is illegal, which it is not. Thanks to the United States Supreme Court and a decision that is more than a decade old that overturned all the remaining state sodomy bans. But whatever, the teachers are there to lie to you. But 83% of teenagers are sexually active without having ever taken a sex ed class. Just this fact alone gives the lie to the idea that if you teach sex, that kids will get it into their heads that sex is a thing that they can have. That the way to prevent kids from becoming sexually active is to deny them information. That if we don't give them sex educations, they will not have sex. Obviously, demonstrably untrue. You have kids, 83% of them, who are having sex, who've had no sex education at all. Already sexually active before they've had any sex ed, before the topic ever came up in a single class. This is a bad plan. America, this is a bad idea. We are so deep in denial about adolescent, young adult, youth sexuality that we want to pretend that if we just don't tell them anything, if we don't tell them about condoms, birth control, consent, pleasure, we don't talk about any of this, that they'll never do it. They'll never get it into their heads that we can keep this sex thing under wraps until they're 30. And then maybe on their wedding day, mom and dad can sit down with them and explain to them about this sex thing that they know nothing about that is about to happen to them on their wedding night. Clearly bullshit. Can we please stop? Can we please stop with this? Can we please drop forever this insane idea that if we deny information and education to young people, they will not somehow become sexually active of their own accord? They are. Your kids, they're they're sexually active. I'm not one of those sex-positive people who feels that it's somehow letting down the sex-positive side if you pause for a moment to consider the possible devastating consequences of sex. I was giving a talk once at a college and one of the questions was, yeah, I'm a virgin and I'm really afraid of sex and I don't you know, I want to be sexually active but I'm just so scared. How do I stop being so afraid of sex? And I, my response was, oh, you should be afraid of sex. Sex is scary. Sex can kill you dead. Intimate partner violence, sexually transmitted infections, unplanned unwanted pregnancies. It can screw up or derail your life. You should approach sex with some fear and trepidation. 
right? So we should acquaint kids with the possible negative outcomes. It's part of a decent and comprehensive sex education. But allowing kids to become sexually active without any information about how to protect themselves, about the possible negative consequences, about how to mitigate for those risks, how to be smart, about pleasure, about consent, about condoms, about birth control, denying them all that information doesn't prevent them from becoming sexually active. They just become sexually active without the tools they need, without the resources, without the insights, without the advice that they need to be sexually active without nuking their genitals or nuking their lives, without getting into huge trouble. They're having sex without being empowered to advocate for themselves. They're having sex without realizing that a woman's pleasure matters too. We're setting kids up to be violated because we're not giving them the tools they need to advocate for themselves. And it's Emily McGuire, the Australian uh, young adult and adult novelist we had on the show a few months ago, pointed out by not emphasizing female sexual pleasure in sex ed classes, we're kind of sometimes setting up boys to violate girls in ways that leave girls feeling devastated and boys not realizing that they've done anything wrong because sex ed, as even when kids get it, it emphasizes male desire, male pleasure. It doesn't emphasize that there's anything in for women, that it's supposed to feel good for them. So boys will have sex with girls who are not having any fun, who are not enjoying themselves and they won't realize that there's anything wrong with this picture. We need sex ed. Our kids need sex ed. Denying them sex ed doesn't stop them from having sex. Giving them super duper shitty sex ed as they do in Mississippi, abstinence education, shithole state, doesn't work either. Mississippi, highest teen pregnancy rate in the country. Kids are having sex. They need info. They need tools. They need to be empowered. We need to pull our heads out of our sandy asses and give them what they need. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm straight 20-year-old living in San Francisco, California. And I had a question for you kind of about long-term relationships. I've been seeing someone for seven months, and he is planning on going to Thailand at the end of the summer. We've been talking about sort of like what to do, and after this weekend and like really getting into it, he really said, I won't do long distance unless you want me to just try to do it for you, even though it's something I don't want. He thinks that going to Thailand is going to be this like eye-opening experience for him and that like he really needs to be alone to do it. I understand that totally. I understand um, wanting to explore the world and, you know, having to put your needs first. And I support him in going to, on the trip and, you know, being selfish in this way. But I really want to be with him. And I really think that part of life is sharing your happiness with other people. And I want to be able to share, like, him share this trip with me and me share what I'm doing with him without holding each other back. I tried to express it to him. Not sure, like, how much we're really understanding each other. But at this point, you know, I decided I don't really want to be together if you aren't willing to put in the effort to be in long distance. So um, we broke up. Um, my question for you is basically, should I not have broken up with him? Should we go back together and stay together while he's not here? I mean, while he's still here before he leaves, you know, should I try and convince him to try long distance and not have 
being with me hinder him or is convincing him to do this illogical and just not going to develop a really good relationship. I know I'm pretty young, but I feel like I am premature and maybe my commitment level is too strong. An amicable breakup is not a no contact order. You guys uh, are not going to do the long distance thing. Uh, he doesn't want to be beholden uh, to a girlfriend back at home for reasons that probably have something to do with beyond him feeling free to go places and take pictures, right? But you can still share. You can share what you're doing. He can share what he's doing. You don't have to share things that given the circumstance, which is if you guys were in a different place right now, you might be very seriously dating – would be painful to hear. You don't share those things. So if he goes off and has adventures with Australian girls or if you're at home and you meet somebody else, you guys don't disclose that during your separation, right? But you can still share. You can write him letters. You can send him emails. You can follow each other on Instagram. You can, although that might be painful, you can – Tell him what you're up to. He can tell you what he's seeing, where he's going, what he's doing, and omit who he may be doing, just as you will omit who you may be doing. But he has made it very clear that he wants to be entirely free while he is abroad. And you know, you could – you say, should I get back together? Well, I guess you could try. But if he doesn't want to – be, have a girlfriend back at home weighing on him to whom he is answerable, then he doesn't want that. And you could, I don't know, you could extract under some sort of duress in the moment a concession from him where he agrees to do the long distance thing, which he clearly is uncomfortable with and does not want to do. And in the end, will not go well if he does not want to do that and he is uncomfortable with it. So I would urge you not to get together with him and be so, forgive me, pathetic in that moment and clearly hurting that he says to you what you want to hear so he doesn't feel like a monster and then you guys wind up breaking up while he's abroad and you feel lied to, manipulate. Just cauterize it right now. Stick it in the fire. It's over for now. Maybe he's someone you could be with down the road. But at this stage of life, he's not ready for a commitment. He wants to see the world without being beholden to anyone. And you would be foolish to extract that commitment from him under a sort of emotional dress, emotional blackmail. So let him go and stay in touch and continue to share and then get back together when you guys are back in the same place and see if you can't pick up where you left off. A uh, little bit weird here. Um, I'm a straight guy. I'm really into gay male porn. You know, I thought for a long time I was gay. I tried. Turns out totally not gay. But I love to fantasize about being gay, which I feel really, really weird about. Anyway, my girlfriend of four years caught me with gay porn. She is convinced I'm bi. She seems to be totally okay with that. But she won't let it go. I keep telling her, you're trying to tell her in some way, but I can't seem to find the way to describe this to her because it seems so bizarre that I am actually not into guys. I just, I don't, I, I, I enjoy the fantasy of pretending to like guys. I don't know. Like anytime I'm actually in the presence of, of men sexually, nothing happens. I'm not offended. I'm not horrified or anything like that. I'm just, blah, this is kind of boring. Anyway, if you give me any advice on how to 
because she, you know, she wants three ways and stuff now, and like fulfilling fantasies of hers that just aren't going to happen. How sad for your girlfriend, who must have been so thrilled when she stumbled over your porn stash, and she knew at that point that you were totally into women because you've been banging the shit out of her for a while, meeting your pussy like a champ, and then she finds your gay porn and thinks, oh my god, Yahtzee, I gotta buy boyfriend, finally I can have those male, male, female, three ways I've been sex about all my life. And then you turn out to be kind of a unicorn. You hear a lot of from lesbians who are into gay male porn. Not into – they want to have dicks themselves that they can't strap on and off. They don't want to be men. But gay porn just does it for them in this way that leaves a lot of them flummoxed and prompts a lot of them to come up with really bullshit rationalizations like lesbian porn is so lousy. I have no choice but to watch gay porn. To which my response is, I, gay porn was horrible claymation from the 60s, clutch cargo shit with fake mouths superimposed. I would watch it before I watched lesbian porn. But here you are, not by, but kind of, in some ways, on some levels, kind of by. Your imagination is by. Your fantasies, your masturbatory fantasies are by. Your porn collection is by. Uh, or maybe entirely gay, but probably by you probably got some girl shit in there too. So what you say to your girlfriend is imagination, fantasies, porn, totally by. In reality, not by at all. Been with men, don't enjoy it. Something about there's some crazy crosswire in my brain and my erotic imagination where this stuff appeals to me when I think about it, but in reality doesn't appeal to me at all. And then see what she does. And then why not a three way? Why the fuck not? There are tens of millions of women in this in the United States alone who are not into other women, who are not by at all, who have had girl, girl, boy, three ways with their husbands and boyfriends because that was their husband and boyfriend's ultimate fantasy. And they were willing to just take one for the relationship team and take what pleasure they could in it and kind of enjoy it. In this camaraderie sense, like you and me, girl, we're going to fucking do him. <laughs> we're not going to touch each other. And that works. And if the girls can do that for the boys and the boyfriends and the husbands, you could do that for your girlfriend. You don't have to touch the dude. You can lay down the law that, yes, darling, I watch gay porn. Trust me. And you've got to respect this or there will be no – Male, male, female, boy, boy, girl, three ways in your future. Trust me, I have no desire for sexual contact with another man. But if you want to have a male, male, girl, woman, three way with you as the woman, I am, I am there. I can do that in the same spirit that so many girls like you have done the uh, woman, woman, man, three way. Good luck. Hi, Dan. So I am calling because I have a conundrum. I'm 33. I'm straight. I'm in South Florida. And for a long time, I've kind of resigned myself that I was just going to have, uh, you know, casual sex, ongoing situationships. But basically, I was not expecting to get into a relationship. But this year, on a whim, I got into OkCupid. I actually lucked out. I met a great guy. He is literally everything you could possibly want on a boyfriend. He's funny. He makes me very relaxed. I'm usually very much a compartmentalized type of person. Um, flowers out of nowhere, daily check-ins. If we don't see each other, we spend all weekends together. 
my family really likes him. So we've been dating about uh, three, four months now. The only problem with this is the sex is just not happening. I know that these things take time. I'm trying to be patient because I am a very impatient twat, and I can admit to that. The thing is that I've had a very kinky sex life uh, prior, and I did lead with that in my OkCupid okay profile, by the way, but I kept hitting into fuckheads and just guys just being awful. Anyways, this guy has treated me like a lady. He's awesome. He's very sweet. He's committed. He's not afraid of being around me or with me, my dogs, my family, whatever. I mean, at first it started kind of, okay, the sex is going and it's, I could use more because I am multi-orgasmic as well. But he started tapering down already. Last weekend, he, I mean, we had already not had sex for like about a week, and two weeks and change. And that's fine. And he's still physically affectionate. But some of it is like sometimes he won't give me sex, I mean, oral unless I ask him, which fine, whatever. But basically, if I don't initiate it, he won't. And I don't know what to do then. He's very sweet. I kind of want to coach him out of this shit. And I'm trying. But even when I make him switch positions, say, like, I don't know, doggy style, he will just collapse on top of me. Like, I don't even know what to do. Like, I want to make this work out so bad because he's a lovely, lovely human being. And he's so sweet. And I feel like an ingrate just complaining about this when I really didn't even expect to find love, period. And he's a lovely, lovely man. <sighs> but I don't know what to do. I'm trying to be patient. And he is kind of coachable sometimes. But I don't even know what to do, how to tell him, like, hey, use your upper body strength. Or I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And I don't want to just throw in the towel right away because that's usually my way to cut and run. So have you told him how you feel about the paucity and the lack of ferocity or intensity in the sex that you're having? Well, I kind of made a couple comments. As far as even if I like something that he's doing, I try to be very encouraging of it. Mm -hmm. Like I would say like, oh, this was really good. Let's do this again. Or like, I love how you were talking me. Like, oh, clean. Let's just do that again. Let's just keep doing that. Or... If he tries a different position, or like if I make him try a different position, but it's almost like not only he's very affectionate, cuddly, physical, physical, or like you know we'll spend a whole weekend together and we'll cuddle and we'll sleep together, and I'll be naked, literally naked. And if I don't make that step, he won't do it. And you, but you haven't said what's up with this. Like I'm naked, I'm here, no. we're hanging out, and if I don't initiate, nothing happens. I want to know what's up. I. Haven't said that with those words. You gotta say that. Like, you gotta say oh. that with those words. If he's as nice, if he's, he's as so he's so sweet. Okay, God. he's so sweet, but he's making you unhappy. Well, he and it's not even like a completely unhappy because, like I said, once we do get going, and you know, or like he tries something different and he stays at it, or he stays hard. But he literally told me last Saturday when I told him, like, listen, we got to do this today because. There's no reason why two healthy adult individuals aren't having sex on a Saturday after spending all day together. And he said, okay, sure, let's go for it. I'm like, kid, you know, within a few, like, minutes, he's like, oh, I'm so winded, I'm so tired. I'm like, 
it's a maybe like I'm reacting too aggressive or you're not into it or like maybe you like me as a person but not like that or he's like no 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 I want to I want to I'm just like so I also don't want to like push him okay, out okay or, okay either he either, <laughs> either he wants to but he's not going yeah. to which is going to make you insane yes or he doesn't want to, but he doesn't want to tell you he doesn't want to because then you'll break up with him and he wants you around because he likes spending time with you and he likes your companionship and he likes you as a person. Maybe he loves you. I am lot, worried about that. But he's a lot I am less, worried a little bit. But he's a lot less sexual than you are. What you have to do is ovary up, as we say here on the show, and lay this out uh-huh. as a problem that has to be solved or the relationship will end because of it. I I have to. I do. I know. I just I- no pussyfooting around. You say to him. You say to him. Look. You know when we have sex. When I initiate, it can be really great. It can be really awesome. There are things you do that I love. I need a lot of sex, and I like a lot of passion. And I need you to initiate, and I need to know what's up. And you seem a lot less interested than I am. So either we're going to break up because I'm not getting the sex I need and enough of it in this relationship, or we can stay together and I can have sex with other people to get that need met. Which you're probably not into. Yeah. I, I would not necessarily push that away, but honestly, I don't think you would because it's very vanilla, very, you know, straightforward, straight okay, well, You've only been dating for how long? Um, Four months? December. Yeah, about December. Yeah, yeah. End of December, so yes. Okay, so in those four months' time, you said you've already had a couple of, a couple, or just one, but two weeks and change without sex at all? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Like, yeah. Terry and I have been together 20 years. We go two weeks without, and we're having a meeting about it. Oh, shit. You need to have, Please you, don't have a meeting. You need uh, to have a meeting about it. And just be, uh, just be honest. Like, you don't have to be vicious. The longer you wait to have this conversation, the likelier you are to have an angry version of it. Right? right. Because if you wait yeah. another four months, if you wait a year, if you wait 10 years <laughs> and two kids into it to have this conversation, you're going to have it from a place of boiling resentment and anger and hurt. And so you need to have yeah. it from a place of we're still getting to know each other, know each other as sexual people. We need to figure out how we fit together. And so here's how I'm feeling. What's up? And then you have to put your, right. then you have to put your bullshit detectors on. There are people out there who are lovely, loving, wonderful partners who they do the intimacy thing, emotional intimacy, just great. He's good with your family. He brings you flowers. He's loving. He's attentive. Yes. But they're just not so into sex, and they never will be. But they'll tell you they will be. They'll tell you they'll work on it because they don't want to lose you. But you need to give them the out in that kind of conversation because you could be lied to in that moment. And you need to say, if this is who you are, there are workarounds, right? Right, right, right. We can have sex more often. We can have sex on a schedule. We can have a monogamish relationship or an open relationship. That's my point. Like, my thing is, like, at this point in time, I almost want to say, like, if what you need is for me to be the aggressor and be the one that initiates, as long as you give me good vanilla sex all the time, I will deal. But it has to, you know, like, it has to happen. I mean, we see each other, like, maybe, you know, in the middle of the week, and then again, like, throughout the weekend, we just kind of spend the weekend together, but it's like, come on, what? Okay, this so, is this the sex yeah. disconnect, like listening to your call. Everything's great, uh-huh. he's so lovely, he's so loving, and then you get in inevitably and I get calls like yours all the time. Yes, you get yes. to that, but the sex and the sex is important, particularly in a sexually exclusive relationship where he is the only person you can go to 
to get your sexual needs met. So you have to. You are allowed to prioritize this. You are not a bad person if you prioritize this. I don't feel like that, though. I feel like also I'm being like this fucking angry that after spending years sleeping around and being a slut and having fun, like I finally get a guy that is like completely awesome in every other way. And now I'm bitching about sex. And I feel like I'm being an asshole. This is an important way. You're not being an asshole. This, this is okay. he needs to be awesome in this way too, and that's not to say that every successful, loving couple that's made a success of it over the long term that they were instantly clicking in the sex department from the get go. There are people who've been in your position who who, right. fi- who fixed it, but you're not going to fix it with hints, and you're not going to fix it with subtlety. You're going right. to fi- fix it by laying it out for him. If he loves okay, you and wants you in his life as badly as he seems to, he'll want to solve this problem too or come to an accommodation that allows him to stay with you and allows you to be not crazy, miserable, deprived, and angry. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Like, I feel like maybe I'm not giving it enough time for chemistry to go because I do know that I'm impatient, but I also know that that's not an automatic thing in no. every relationship. You're not going to get it like just boom. It's gone. Chemistry, schmemistry. You got to use your words. You got to say, this is who I am sexually. These are my needs. Are you capable of meeting them? What are your, who are you sexually? What are your needs sexually? Am I capable of meeting those? Are we a match? And if we aren't, if we're close enough that we can like move toward each other sexually and become a match, that's usually what happens. That's, that's the, the best that most of us can hope for. But if you're absolutely not a match, then you need to end it or you need an accommodation that allows you to stay without it being a sexually exclusive relationship if he's incapable of meeting your sexual needs. Right. So, okay, so fine. I got to come to Jesus and yeah, a conversation you, with this now. You got to have a come to, come on, come in, come near Jesus conversation. Yes. Yes. I need my mouth too. Anyways. Use your words. It was, a, it was a pleasure Bye. talking to you and good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love you. I love everybody that works for you. I love everything you do. So Thanks thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 21 plus something gay in a two-year monogamous relationship with my partner. Um, everything is good. Just have a quick situation. Didn't know if you could shed some guidance on it. Um, my partner is pretty vanilla when it comes to sexual activity, which is fine. That's good. Good. But I kind of have a more dark side sometimes, and I've kind of been wanting to go to the Folsom Street Fair maybe this year or next year, and I'm not sure how to bring that up with him. Um, He is vegan, so he's not really into leather or anything like that. Um, I'm not sure if I should ask him to go with me and make him uncomfortable and not really want to be there, which make it awkward and kind of ruin it for me, or to ask if I should go by myself, but then I'll feel like maybe I'm doing something wrong, shouldn't be here without my partner. I'm not sure. Two years into this relationship and you're afraid to tell your boyfriend you want to go to the Folsom Street Fair, that's a bad sign or that's something you've got to work on? That's something you've got to fix? You need to re-engineer your relationship a little bit. It's fine that he's a vegan who disapproves of people wearing leather and if you actually go to the Folsom Street Fair, you will see tons of people in neoprene. You'll see tons of people in latex. You have fetish wear options 
beyond the dead cow variety these days. Um, and I'm sure your boyfriend uh, lives in the world and leaves the house and walks around and there are people wearing leather tennis shoes and leather belts and leather jackets everywhere he fucking goes. So going to Folsom is going to be really no different. And if you look at pictures of Folsom, so many people who are not really kinky, so many people who are not in fetish gear go to Folsom that it's not like wall-to-wall leather guys. It's not like he would have to shove through a crowd of people wearing leather and it would touch his skin and he would get the icks. Not like that at all. But you know, if fetish and kink and that kind of sexy street party isn't something that he's interested in but it's something you're interested in, you guys need to have a conversation about autonomy and individuality and separate life experiences and, and desires and pleasures and vacations in the context of this relationship and whether those things are permissible and allowed or whether you two are going to be welded together side by side for the rest of your lives. Um, studies of successful long-term relationships show that one of the indicators of success, like people who are together a long time and happy, separate vacations, time alone, separate friend circles – that the couples who are more likely to break up are the ones who never spend any time apart at all and who share all the same interests and all the same friends. That is destabilizing. So you going off on your own and having a little adventure and if you guys are monogamous, keeping your pants on, you know, soaking up the erotic energy, kind of hanging out like you would if you went out dancing in town one night without him, fine. And then take all that erotic energy that you've been charged with home and plow it into your – boyfriend and he should be able to be cool with that and if he's two years in, not cool with that, you're just two years in and you guys can't negotiate that kind of freedom, is he the right guy for you? If you are into fetish wear, if you are into kink, if you are into leather and you're with somebody who disapproves and wants you to sacrifice all of that for him, like the previous caller where the sexual disconnect is a cancer that's going to eat away at the relationship, that's kind of a cancer that's going to eat away at your relationship. Fetish, vet life, kink sites, recon, a lot of these fetish hookup sites are packed with people who are sneaking around to get their kink on after years of stuffing it down and suppressing it because their partners aren't into it and they're out and gay in their lives and kinky and on the down low online and seeking to cheat. You don't want to be that guy in three or four years. So you need to pick this lock now. You need to talk to him. I have these interests. You do not share them. In a successful long-term relationship, the compromise, the accommodation is I'll go do these things on my own and then I'll come home and we will be together. That's the successful one. And we'll have some separate life experiences. On the weekend I go to Folsom, you can go where vegans go during Folsom. I'm not sure where that is. New Hampshire. He can go to New Hampshire. And then you guys can get back together and you can share stories about who you met, who you hung out with, what fun you had, what fun he had. And then you'll be able to look at each other and think, you know what? Him being in my life makes things happen for me. Even if sometimes I get to do those things or have to do those things on my own, he's no impediment to me pursuing happiness, finding my happiness, finding my joy in the places where I find it. Being with him means I don't have to give that up and you'll love him all the more for it. Hi, Dan. 25-year-old female bisexual virgin from the San Francisco Bay Area. I usually am able to see this virgin thing as a maybe potential future superpower, good for weeding out people, but I also see it as a potential liability. 
Um, I'm currently in professional school, so I'm very busy. Um, I also, for reasons not worth going into family history monthly, I don't drink. So I don't often find myself in places to meet potential partners. Do you have any ideas about how to go about this? I would love to dispense with the virginity thing with someone that I could develop a friendship with first, but once again, don't really have the time for it. So online dating, uh, take my introverted self out more often. Yes, yes. Online dating. An online ad that said shy-ish, bi, 25-year-old, kind of introverted, busy student, virgin, seeks something because clock is ticking and I'm interested in making friends with somebody and beginning my sexual adult life. And I'd like to sort of fold that in around my busy, busy, busy schedule and have a workaround for my introvertedness. Uh, that's an ad that'll get a lot of response and you'll get some shitty creeps, but you'll get shitty creeps no matter what your ad looks like. No matter who you are, you're going to have to deflect a certain number of shitty creeps, but you might find a good one. If you don't like bars and you don't have time for that kind of socialization, then online is where you go. Online is there for you. Online is really kind of awesome. A lot of people – Get online for the first time. They take out an ad for the first time and they're – particularly if they're female, they're kind of buried in responses and they feel a little overwhelmed and they're like, oh my god, I can't deal. Well, you know what also is overwhelming? A bar full of drunk guys on a Saturday night. That can be overwhelming too. All the ways in which we meet other people can at times seem overwhelming. So yeah, you're not going to get laid if you don't put yourself out there. You have this tool at your disposal now because you're a 25-year-old introverted busy student virgin now and not 50 years ago. You have this tool at your disposal that can very quickly with a little bit of effort because you only have to write the ad once, get you all sorts of attention and, and bring sort of suitors to you. And then you can use your virginity as that superpower that will separate the good guys from the bad guys. I do want to say this for bars though. Singles bars, pickup joints, straight and gay, they're full of people who hate bars. They're full of people who love bars, but they're also full of people who hate bars. There's a lot of people out at the bars on a Friday or Saturday night because they know that's where the pussy is. They know that's where the dick is and they want the pussy or the dick, but they don't really want the bar. So there are lots of people you can meet at bars that you – if you hit it off and it works out, that you never ever have to go to a bar together again. That's how I felt about bars when I was in them. Like I want to meet somebody that I never have to go to a gay bar with ever again. And I did. And you can too in a bar or online. Speaking of virginity, Kate Monroe is the author of Losing It, How We Popped Our Cherry Over the Last 80 Years, which is published in the States this week. Uh, and she's also a blogger at The Virginity Project, to which she now gets sent virginity lost stories from all over the world. Kate, thanks for jumping on the phone with us. That's my pleasure, so, so tell us about the book and where you got these stories. Um, well, I had the idea, and I and I just I was so excited about the idea um, that I just I just started talking to people, and I think my enthusiasm really fueled the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's interesting, really, that I was just thinking about this before you know before we spoke, that really I could count the people on one hand that that turned me down. Every, it, everybody every, was really lots, excited to share their virginity loss. They stories. wanted to do it. Yeah, people really wanted to do it. Are you? Yeah. What's valuable about hearing other people's virginity loss stories? Why would we even want to know them? And in knowing them, is there any benefit? I think it's 
it's interesting to go back to, to a bit of your life that sort of is quite set in stone. You know, you can't change the facts about that story. It, it is what it is. But, I, you know, of course, we change as people as we get older. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting journey, I think, that people go on when they look back at something. Um, and they often see things on, upon reflection that they didn't see at the time. And I think it, it often allows people to reframe possibly a story um, would it in, be, in a more positive light sometimes. Would it be helpful for virgins to read these stories? I think so, because it, I think to the virgin it can seem like this great big unattainable thing, particularly to male virgins, I find. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult for everyone, but I think it's a special brand of difficulty that men feel. Um, I think it would help them to know that everybody just has, you know, so much anxiety around this. I, I don't know anybody who doesn't have or didn't have some anxiety around it. And, and, you know, in looking through the book, a lot of the stories are, I would call, non-spectacular. Like, the sex isn't spectacular. People learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the experience may have been positive. The experience was positive in a lot of cases. But people are inept the first time. A lot of the virgins I talk to on the show, they're worried about being inept. They're worried about having no skills. And people are inept and don't have skills, and they lose their virginities and go on to wonderful, fulfilling sex lives. Exactly. And it isn't, is that not the way that it's supposed to be? I, I think one can make an assumption, you know, looking at culture at large, that it's going to come really naturally and we're all going to be terribly good at sex and sex is very sexy. But of course, it takes, it takes time to develop the skills and practice. for it to become good and enjoyable. Yeah, a, a human body is a lot more complicated than a violin, and nobody can play the fucking violin the first time they pick it up. But everybody <laughs> expects that they should be able to play a human the first time they pick one up, and it ain't exactly. true. Exactly. And I think, actually, yeah, when pe- people, you know, I say to people, do you want to tell me your story? And they'd say, oh, my God, my story's so boring. And I, I came to realize that what they meant when they said that was that it wasn't a, a moment of great sort of athleticism. Mm-hmm. The, the moment itself, you know, it was nothing to write home about. But, of course, the story around that, you know, dull moment is often spectacular. Is your virginity lost story in the book? It is. Under my own name, I felt that I really couldn't sort of hide behind a pseudonym. It just wouldn't be fair, having listened to everybody else tell their stories. And how was yours? Oh, it's one of those stories I kind of always... I think I look back at it in rose-tinted specs now, but it was, you know, it was nothing to write home about. Um... It was romantic to me in the sense, really, that it happened on my first holiday away from my parents. And it, that was very exciting to me to go overseas. I, was, I have to say, I was with somebody else's parents, so it was a nightmare for them instead. <laughs> <laughs> this poor guy, uh, you know, and his wife took me and their daughter and another friend away. And, you know, looking back, I can see this chap obviously felt he had, kind of had to defend our honour. You know, we were quite young. But, you know, I would just blithely skip through the holiday without a second thought as to how any of this might affect them. You know, me slipping off in the middle of the night with a cute French boy. When I was – that sounds awesome, skipping off into the night with a cute French boy. <laughs> I wish that was my virginity loss story. <laughs> so, you know, I remember when I was gay and young and coming out, there was this way that gay kids, we would talk about our virginities then. And this was – you know, I'm so old that it was when – really rare for gay kids to come out in high school, which is what I did. Mm. Uh, gay people were still coming out after college 35 years ago. Um, yeah. So you talked about – you talk, you know, gay guys would get together. You talk about when you lost your straight virginity and then when you lost your gay virginity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that you could have multiple virginities, that you had not a V card but kind of a deck, that yeah. you know, the first time you slept with a woman, the first time you slept with a man, the first time you gave a blowjob, the first time you got fucked in the ass, the first time you did this, the first mm-hmm. time you did that. This, you had all these virginities to lose. 
Um, where do you come down on that? I mean, the book focuses on first time. Like there's this idea that you're a virgin, you had sex, it's gone forever. Do you believe that there's kind of a, 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 a spectrum of virginities that you've got to lose? I really do. And I, and I think straight people would say that as well. And, you know, you just want to watch somebody's face change when you say to them, well, when was the first time you had sex and you enjoyed it? And then they'll go off into raptures about that. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I could probably could have done another book on that story. But, but lots of people would say, well, you know, I, I felt like the first time that I got, you know, I had a really intimate moment with somebody was the time I lost my virginity. Look, for lots of people, it, it, was, it was a process as opposed to one moment in time, one defining moment of time. But I think one only really gets that perspective perhaps with time. You might, you might not yeah, think of at the time. I think that's really smart. You're like, just you saying that is making me think, okay, I remember the first time I had sex. When was the first time I had sex? And then to remember the first time I had sex and really felt good about it, really felt connected, really felt loved. Yeah. And, and that was a different kind of virginity to lose. It's kind of getting your, your heart cherry popped instead of your crop cherry yeah. popped. Yeah. Actually, I remember one woman writing to me. I've been, I've been looking for that story in my blog. You know, I should label them better. Um, and she described a moment when she first had sex with somebody that she really liked and the relationship had developed over time. And she said she actually felt afterwards her heart actually pop. Um, it, it was the, the sweetest story I've ever read. So tell us about the Virginity Project and where people can find the blog. Um, it's uh, well, if, they, if you Google the Virginity Project, you'll find it. It's a TypePad blog. Blog. It's www.virginityproject.typepad.com. So I started it just really be, sort of to describe my adventures. Really, I needed somewhere to vent because I thought this is such an unusual thing to do to interview lots of people about virginity, and I I didn't know anybody else who was doing anything even similar. And, um, and, and, and I wanted to write about my adventures in seeking particular stories that were just so difficult to get. You know, mm-hmm. I, I went on this sort of crazy wild goose chase trying to get a Muslim virginity loss story, which I never really got. So I decided to start a blog and, you know, it piqued people's interest and people sort of just voluntarily just began sending me their experiences and, it's funny, you know, to get an email from somebody that you'll never meet that literally says, I lost my virginity two days, 12 hours and six minutes ago. Please, can I tell you about it? Wow. And so I sort of somehow kind of morphed into, I suppose, a bit of an agony aunt in, in a way. I mean, there's some people I've corresponded with for years, really, since I started the blog who occasionally will write and update me and say, hey, you remember I told you that story about X, Y, and Z and how awful it was and well, this is the update and now things are much better and it feels like a funny little digital flock of sheep that I've, you know, got out there. So initially, (laughs) though, at first you were approaching people and asking them to share their stories with you? For the book, yes, exactly. Did did you get any really negative reactions or people were just appalled that you would ask such a question and didn't want to share? No, not really. There was one girl I remember who just said, no, Kate, I don't want to tell you that. But really that was the only one. I mean, it's not as if you sort of just go up to people and, and, and ask them straight out. It, it would often happen that I'd be at parties or just out and about, and people would say, well, what do you do? And I'd sort of drop this clangor. I'd say, well, actually, I'm writing this book about virginity loss. And people would sort of stand there, and sometimes you, just, you can watch them drifting off. I can see it happen. I can watch their faces as, as they start to think about it. Um, you know, and they're, they're, they're gone back in time. And so often people would just volunteer themselves on the spot or they would say, oh, I know someone who would be great for this. I, uh, I have to ask this because, you know, we're Americans and we're obsessed. 
Uh, and you're a Brit, and you worked on this in England, right? Mm-hmm. Any royal virginity loss stories? <laughs> you got Prince Harry's in there? How I wish I could say yes. <laughs> I just lie. Yes, I do. Prince Harry's is in there. It's under a pseudonym. You have to read the whole book and then tease out which one's the <laughs> insanely hot ginger. Kate Monroe, she's the author of Losing It, How We Popped Our Cherry Over the Last 80 Years, uh, just published in the States. What's the uh, publisher? Icon Books. Icon Books, and she blogs at The Virginity Project, uh, where you can share your virginity loss story with Kate if you, uh, you want to. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey, Dan. So my girlfriend is pregnant, and she keeps saying, well, it's... Sex is not just a big party. Like, there are consequences to sex, which obviously is true. Here's the problem. Literally today, the doctor told her that it's a high-risk pregnancy because she found out somewhat late, and she and I have been drinking and smoking and other things. And... Here's what happened. She called her best friend who is eight months pregnant. And her best friend successfully convinced her that that doctor doesn't know what he's talking about by going online and sort of self-diagnosing whether or not my girlfriend is in the proper place uh, physically and whether that doctor is just feeding her a bunch of lines to make it easier for her to terminate. Never mind the fact that the doctor actually pulled out his own book and showed her that if she is regularly drinking less than what she and I have been, that it's a high-risk situation and she could have uh, a litany of problems with the child, let alone it potentially having fetal alcohol syndrome, which is pretty bad, really bad, actually. I don't know what to do because her best friend, from the jump, I didn't like her. She seemed very selfish. Every time we went out to dinner, she was sending things back and being really rude to waiters and waitresses. Literally, I'm talking every time when she came to visit, her friend is from another place. So I think her friend is just trying to get her to have a child because her friend is about to have a child and she kind of wants somebody in on it with her. But I'm also in that really strange place where I'm the guy and I'm trying to give her the space to make this decision herself. And I don't want to pressure her one way or the other. It gets thicker and harder because I'm unemployed and I have been for a time. And there've been times in my past where I did somewhat well, but I don't have a lot of faith right now. The economy is difficult. And I've always worked for myself, so I don't have a great resume with which I can go out and get a great job. Now, I'm going to figure it out, but it just isn't a good time to have a kid for me. And it's not a good time for her either. And I don't want to be insensitive to her situation. I want her to make the decision. At the same time, I don't like that her best friend, who is eight months pregnant has decided to take it upon herself to try to change her mind. I don't know what to do, man. 
the last thing I want is to have a child out there that I am unable to support because it happened to me at a time where I wasn't ready and it pulled me to a place because it's a big financial burden where it's hard for me to get ahead. And I also don't want to come at her like a tornado and tell her she needs to, quote, get rid of it because I love this woman. She's a beautiful and amazing woman. I don't know what to do, dude. God, I wish I was gay, but I'm not. Help me out, please. There's really nothing I can do for you, unfortunately. If I had a time machine, these are the problems that I could solve, the type of problem I could solve if I had the time machine that I would love to have. I get a lot of letters, get a lot of questions where people ask me at the end, as you did, what do I do? And the only workable answer is you get in a time machine and you go back to before this happened and you make sure you're using 14 forms of birth control instead of just one or you come on our knees instead. I'm slightly reluctant to barge into this this problem. I'm slightly reluctant to insert myself into it. Uh, I'm with you. you. People should not take advice – from people who are rude to waiters. That should just disqualify someone from best friendship, from confidant status, from someone you would listen to in a crisis or anything else. People who are rude and shitty to service personnel of any sort are jerks and nobody should take advice from them. So I don't think that your girlfriend should take advice from her best friend if her best friend is the sort of piece of shit who is shitty to waiters. That said, you know, I don't know what her relationship is with her best friend. There's often, you know, boyfriends will have conflicts with best friends where you talk to the boyfriend and the best friend is this monster and then you meet the best friend and she's lovely. That sometimes people have fucked up impressions of folks that are really in competition for the affections of their girlfriend with in a way. And they're not sexual attentions but emotional attentions. So I can't just take you at your word that the best friend is this shitty horrible person. Although she's rude to waiters, so probably. And your girlfriend has already been in the situation where she has spoken to two men who really think that she should have an abortion, that she should terminate. You and I think she really needs to take your feelings into consideration. I think it matters. I think the guy's feelings in, in a situation like this has to be taken into account. The decision is ultimately the woman's in the end. But it's a decision made in a context and your feelings – about the timing or the advisability of this child being brought into the world are important. But she's talked to you and she's talked to her doctor and both you and the doctor are telling her terminate. And then she talked to her friend and she's on the fence or she changed her mind and maybe her friend has this Bengali-like control over her and just got under her skin and into her head and flipped her and now she's having this She's planning not to terminate anymore because she doesn't really want the baby. But she doesn't want to – she's just bowing to the pressure that her friend is putting on her. Or maybe she turned to her friend for permission to do what she really wants to do, which is to have the baby, right? Maybe she acquiesced under pressure in that room, talking with you, talking with her doctor, agreed with you men, you guys, that it was probably the right thing to do and could see the logic and the reason – but her heart wasn't in it. And then she talks to this woman and she has – her best friend, she has suddenly has permission to go with her heart. What I'm saying is that she may be going to you and 
pinning on her best friend this change of heart that is actually where her heart was all along. She just needed an outside force. We have talked on the show a lot about the way women are socialized, not to say no to men, to defer to men. Add a doctor into that mix, a male doctor, and a lot of women feel like they can't advocate for themselves. They can't speak up for themselves. So she might have agreed that termination was the best choice in that moment, talking with you, talking with her doctor, even though it wasn't really what she wanted. It wasn't the choice that she wanted to make. So I'm just unpacking the situation. I'm not really helping. I don't really have much advice for you. I think you go to her and you walk her through the reasons why termination of this pregnancy is in your best interest. Well, let's start with in her best interest, in the best interest of the children she may have someday. You walk her through the chances that there's been damage done to the fetus that she is carrying because of the drinking. Fetal alcohol syndrome is a real thing and can be very debilitating. And then you back the fuck off and ask her to make up her own mind. And I think maybe you by rights could say, I want you to make up your own mind so I'm going to back off and I think your best friend needs to back off too. And you can share with her your feelings about what be, may be motivating her best friend to encourage her to carry the to term and have the baby. That there may be selfishness at play there. But then you both need to back off. You need to back off. The best friend needs to back off. She needs to make this decision for herself ultimately. And you're not really in the power seat. If you love her, you'll tell her what you think, tell her what you feel, make the best case and then give her the space and the time and the freedom to make her own choice. Hi. I am a 25-year-old straight married lady. My husband is wonderful, and we are actually expecting our first child. And my question isn't really about him, but it's more about my mother. Um, she uh, she and I have not had a exceptionally good relationship. Um, it's culminated into us actually not having spoken to one another for about two years now. Although we never had a super great relationship, as soon as my husband came into the picture and more specifically proposed to me, uh, she kind of went off the deep end. It got to the point where my husband and I got a knock on the door and there's my dad saying that I need to have my husband leave the house because my mom wants to come in and have a talk with me alone. Um, and it's 11.30 at night, and it's just really bizarre. And that night ended up with her calling the cops on me um, to try to get my husband, who was on the lease, to leave the apartment so she could come in and scream at me more about how we needed to break up. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of the night that we stopped talking to one another. It's been, like, it's two years, and I am expecting now. And although I'm back on speaking terms with my dad, I'm not with my mom. And I'm wondering if I should try to open that back up. She does not like my husband at all. Um, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that she's Korean and he is not Korean. He is a white guy and she does not like that. So, yeah, I'm just hoping for some advice. Wow, your mother sounds fucking crazy. Uh, you did the right thing, carving her out of your life, backing her out. Um, I can't imagine that the kind of fucking crazy person 
who would barge into her daughter's apartment at 1130 at night and summon the police to remove her daughter's boyfriend or husband from the premises so that she can scream at her daughter and is screaming at you because she disapproves of this white dude thing that you're marrying her with or having sex with or your boyfriend's a white dude is going to be overjoyed at the idea of a mixed race grandbaby. So I would let dad take care of it if I were you. I would tell dad, guess what? You're going to be a grandfather. You get to decide, dad, whether mom needs to know that. But I'm having a grandchild. I'm having a baby. We're having a baby. Your grandchild. Be nice to have that kid have a relationship with his grandparents. I am not into inviting the crazy and the bullshit back into my life. You guys will not have any role in this child's life if you are crazy, shitty, racist, screaming fucks to me or my husband or our kid. That's the price of admission to grandparenthood. Grandparenthood, it's an awesome sort of fun thing. A lot of people really look forward to it at your age. And you can enter the grandparent theme park and have a blast. The price of admission is sanity, respect, love. And if you can't pay those prices, no grandchildren, no grandchild, no access for you guys. And let dad take care of it. Dad's obviously been handling mom a long time and he can handle this. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling from a conservative state and uh, I have a quick question for you. Um, I uh, moved back here when my mom got sick and uh, I'm gay. I've been out for a long time. I came out when I was in high school. My parents kind of, uh, you know, had issues with it. And then I um, came out again in college and they still had issues with it. And then I came out again when I was in grad school and after seven, seven years of time, we got through the coming out process and my family's pretty cool and, and it sucks. I, I moved back to this conservative state to take care of my mom when she got sick and we kind of worked through it. About almost a year ago now, I uh, met someone and I've been the happiest I've ever been. She is also from the same conservative state and her family actually lives in a rural part of our state and she and uh, is not out to her family. And we're both in our 30s, and she is uh, has conservative grandparents and uh, conservative parents, and she's not out. So she's out socially. She is out in her life, you know, in our day-to-day life. We're out together, but she isn't to them. It just causes a lot of frustration because I understand that uh, we live in a conservative state. Um, it's a right to hire state, which means that you can be fired for being gay. Um, she's an educator, so like using discretion at work is important. Um, it's the same thing with me. Um, there are uh, parts of my life where I have to use discretion, but it doesn't make me any less out. And so here we are in the situation where I don't want to be in the closet, but and I'm really happy with her, but it sucks. Two of her grandparents are ailing and she could stand to inherit a lot of money, but they would pretty much cut her out is the way she takes it. And I don't know how to navigate this and trying to help her through this. It's like me trying to do it all over again for myself. And I'm so happy. And yet I'm just so sad. It's because they're both adults and we should be able to do what we want. And to calm down that she's having some financial issues. 
And so, really, us living together, and we've been together for almost a year now, it would make sense. It would fix so many problems, but because she's not out with her family, um, it's not really an option, and I'm just exhausted, and I don't know what to do. You know, when I was listening to your call, I was just thinking, okay, so the girlfriend's closeted, and that clearly pains you, very clear by the end of the call that it pains you. But I was wondering, as I listened, if there was any sort of nitty-gritty daily life way that her being closeted to her parents and grandparents impacted your quality of life, that, you know, were you limited in some way? Were you playing games? Like you couldn't answer the phone or you couldn't do this. You had to like hide pictures when they came over. And and then at the end, you offered up kind of a nitty-gritty example of uh, of the impact of preserving her closet – uh, is having on you both that you can't live together. Yeah. Are, are there any um, Are there any other ways that your girlfriend being closeted has a a negative impact on your sort of daily in and out life and intimacy? Not at all. Like we actually have a really happy life together. Um, her job's changing right now, and she might have to be looking for different employment. And so the fear of her being between employment and. Uh, and uh, and and obviously, us living together would take that strain off of that. Do you guys have to stay there? Are you obligated? You know, a lot of people, a lot of people are, who are closeted, like it helps to be far the fuck away from your family to to to, to stay closeted. So basically, I'm I'm very permanent. I'm 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 here. Like I had decided, like with with my family, that um, basically living in this part of the country affords me the ability to run my art studio like yeah to live your living life in this part of the, but, for, for the type of the type of field i'm in living in this part of the country um i'm a big fish in a small pond so i've i've been afforded a lot of professional success in my field um because i'm in this part of the country so it sounds like there might be a price that you have to pay to stay where you are which is yeah. shouldering the emotional burden of preserving your girlfriend's closet. Mm-hmm. And that, is that a non-negotiable for her just because she doesn't want to deal with the craziness of her family and perhaps losing that inheritance, which is, you know, it's a high price to pay for a pile of cash at some indeterminate point in the future, stuffing that down all those years. But if those are non-negotiables for her, the only choice you have to make is, is that a price you're willing to pay to be with her? That's it. Well, and it, and it is, but then there's a the part of me that, you know, the, um, especially, you know, in our state, because recently we've gotten a little bit more energy from, you know, with marriage equality and that stuff and that kind of stuff that obviously. And marriage equality is coming to your state and ho- and hopefully soon the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. It is legal to fire people for being gay, lesbian, or bi in 29 states and legal to fire people for also being trans in 33 states. But we are yeah. going to get at some point the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, more sponsors in Congress than ever. We need the, no. the Dems and to like, take and the Congress. Thing is, living in this state, I understand the idea of prof- functioning – functioning with discretion professionally. I have to do that as well. I work with a couple of nonprofit education things here locally, and I have to function with a certain level of discretion um, when I function professionally as well, especially as an educator okay, as so, well. So, so wait, wait, what pains you about your girlfriend's closet then? Is it just that you don't get to meet her parents? Does it just like open old wounds for you because you had to do all this hard work of bringing your family around? 
what makes her extraordinarily unhappy. Um, you know, like she feels, like she like she feels torn. Like so, she's not as close to her family as mine. But like there are obviously times when it's like her her parents live kind of in a rural part, and they come to town on the weekends to do like shopping and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so basically, she comes she comes to do you know, they'll come to town and then I kind of have to like kind of rush away and, and, you know, leave and like those types of things. And then she feels bad because. Okay. And how much money are we talking about? Substantial. Okay. Like life changing. Okay. Okay. And how old are these motherfucking grandparents? They're pretty old. Okay. So we're just going to be mercenary about this then. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't forever. They're like afraid to come out to family because there's a pile of money. And, I, and I'm not really down with that. You know, but I, that's easy for me to say because I'm from a family with no money. So there was no money sort of that I had yeah. to factor into the consideration about when to come out. People who have the kinds of careers that you guys have because of the economic fucking injustice in this country live very hand to mouth and it's very tenuous. So I don't want to discount – for you guys, how life-changing that money could be or how important that is as a consideration. You know, it's easy for me to say, oh, you should just be out and fuck the money because there was no money that I had to worry about when I was yeah. coming out. That said, yeah. like, you know, for you to get through this, and I'm just trying to game this out. How do you get through this? Like, clear, you were crying in your call to me. Like, clearly it pains you greatly having to hide, yeah. having to swallow this, having to really go back in the closet. That's what you do when, you know, I always say to out gay people, don't yeah. date closet cases. Because you're recloseted. A closet yeah. case who wants to date people who of the same sex as opposed to some opposite sex partner they're fooling or lying to, they're just yeah. pulling people in with them. So if you've been out for a long time and comfortable in your own skin and living with some integrity, that can feel very compromising and, and emotionally very difficult to date somebody who's closeted. But, but if the reason she can't come out is that there is this pile of money that is one broken hip away – and you're down with that and you're willing to sign up with that and you look at her and say, I would pay any price. I would take a bullet. I would walk through fire. I will eat the pain for five more years of being closeted until your grandparents die. Yeah. But then lay down the law. Like once your grandparents are dead and the money thing is out of the equation, you have got to come out to your parents. Yeah. Having a group of friends where everybody's really out and proud in a state where it's difficult to be at times, this component can sometimes be difficult. You know what I mean? Cause like, yeah. but having the permission to make that choice or like feeling like it's okay that it doesn't make me less or not as good to be able to do that. And everybody gets to come out in their own way at their own time. And everybody has different life circumstances and different considerations. You know, I think, I think people should be out, right? Yeah. And sometimes people underestimate their families. They think I can never tell my mom, my dad, my grandparents because they couldn't handle it because they'll never get over it because they'll disown me. They'll disinherit me. They're so hateful that I can't do this thing. And sometimes when I listen to people say that shit, it just sounds like excuse making and cowardice. Like I have an excuse not to do this thing that scares me because I'm going to round my parents up to irredeemable monsters. Who, yeah. can, who can never come around. And I've had so many friends who told me they could never come out to their parents, never come out to their grandparents because they couldn't handle it. They were too hateful. They were too conservative. They were too religious. And then they were outed or they came out and their parents were great. And they lost years that they could have had an honest adult relationship with their parents and they didn't because they underestimated who their parents – they underestimated their parents. And yeah. That could be the case here. But you know what? There are people who've been disinherited. There are people who've lost their families when they came out. 
Well, sometimes you're sometimes you're well rid of your family when you lose them. Well, but and she you also has gone through like she really had a challenging upbringing, and she kind of feels like like eventually, you know, this this final this final piece will finally kind of is like what makes that challenging upbringing worth it. Like the idea that like you know they're never going to be accepting, they're never going to do those things, and and maybe like I think her parents have the potential to eventually come around. Her father has a bunker bumper sticker with Obama with a target on his face on his on the bumper. Like I mean, we're talking about like rural America, very very like hateful. very conservative, hateful. very hateful, very hateful. Um, we both are pretty feminine, so we pass very well. So you know, so we can kind of navigate our professional careers in a way where the people who we trust know, but then at the same time, as educators in a state where you are oftentimes working with families who would have a huge problem with it. And that and that, that doesn't mean the kid has a problem with it, but it doesn't change the fact that their family members would. No, it's that, like, it's like talking to you is like talking to somebody who's living in 1958. It's crazy. It's kind of breaking my brain. And uh, that that's a function of my like Seattle urban blue state privilege, I guess, in that just hearing you unpack what it is, you know, the social dynamics where you are maybe makes me a little more sensitive to your particular circumstances as loathe as I usually am to sign off on closetedness because, you know, no families would have – we wouldn't be where we are if people hadn't come out in difficult circumstances to people who who couldn't handle it, to families that rejected them. The whole first – you know, the, the people who started coming out in the 50s, 60s and 70s did not come out to pride parades and families that were thrilled. Of course not. And so, so you're just going to have to shoulder the pain then. Like there's no yeah. solution. There's no there's no fix here. You move away, which yeah. you can't do. You come out, which you can't do. Or you have the big sad every once in a while that you had on the call that you made to us. Like okay. every once in a while, the like shit you have to carry around makes you so sad you have a cry, and then you get up and pick that shit back up because you don't think there's you don't think you have any other choice, and perhaps you don't. Yeah. But then you just have to you have to own it. You have to live with it. Hearing you say that helps me a lot because there's also the part of it's like you don't want to be the bad gay. That is that is what has changed everything for queer people in this world. Exactly, it's the, it's the single most important act any individual lesbian, gay, bi, or trans person can take is to to be out. The polling all shows it. Like we've seen such movement on people's perceptions of queer people, people's support for LGBT civil rights. It all hinges on knowing someone who's gay or lesbian or bi or trans. And there are tons of people out there who know people or knew people that were queer, but they didn't know they knew them because the queer people in their life weren't out. And it does slow down the pace of progress for you guys not to be out. And you just have to accept that that's a fact and you can have a sad about it. You've laid out some fine justifications for for not acting now, for not being out now. And so is it a bad are you a bad gay? Well, there are better gays. I don't think that makes you a bad gay. You're a gay in a particular circumstance that's very difficult where you've had to make a difficult choice, right? Yeah. And nobody can tell you that you're making the wrong choice except for me because I do yeah. think you're making the wrong choice on some level. Like perhaps you're underestimating your family. But I say this from a place of complete ignorance. Not you. I don't live where you live. I don't have the people in my life that you have in your life. I'm not in the uh, under the pressures that you guys are under. So my opinion on that is you can take it into account and then set it aside and make your own choice. But what you can't do is ask ask for a fix when there is no fix. You're going to have to live with yeah. this choice that you guys have made for the reasons that you have made it and you can have your sads about it 
when you feel down about it. And you can change everything. You don't have to live like this. You can take risks. You can lose that yeah. inheritance. You know, if the pain that you're living through now by being closeted is greater than, you know, the whoop-de-doo, happiness, life-changing, everything that money would bring later, then come out and risk the money, which you might still get in the end. Who knows? But, 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 the, but the thing you can't do is – and I, I, I'm, not try, I'm not trying to be cruel. You can't complain about it. Right, you've just got to own it. Yeah. You've just got to own it, and eat it, batten down the hatches, and say, "This is how we're going to live, and we're going to get out, get on with it." I have to Be- tell you, this is exactly what I needed, and I really appreciate it a lot. You're welcome, and you know, we're gonna all of us who are out and queer out in the world, including people who are out and queer where you are. We're gonna keep fighting to hopefully make it better, so that eventually you guys can come out. And maybe that'll happen before her grandparents die. Maybe it'll happen after her grandparents die. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to call. Sure thing. Bye. Hi, Dan. I am a heterosexual male living in a big city on the East Coast. Uh, I recently joined a Bikram yoga studio and think that perhaps there are gay men who are hitting on me after class or in the locker room. One guy in particular was staring at me after class uh, one particular day. And he was, uh, I saw him a few days later outside the studio, and he was really eager to engage me in conversation, and he quickly asked me for my Facebook information, suggested we get coffee, uh, and, you know, generally people aren't so friendly in this city. Uh, well, I'm not entirely certain he's gay, uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I could be way off the mark, but um, I don't think so. Uh, I felt slightly uncomfortable when talking to him because I didn't want to lead him on in any way. Uh, but I also didn't want to avoid talking to him uh, and come across like a dick. Um, he seemed like a nice guy. Um, so basically, I just ended up talking to him for a while and then slipped in the fact that I had a girlfriend towards the end of the conversation. Uh, and I wanted to ask you if you thought that was the right thing to do. Yes, that was the right thing to do. Hey, Dan. You know what's more depressing than finding out that your partner's secret fantasy is to have a gangbang with 12 men? whose cocks are several inches larger than yours, finding out that she has no fantasies at all. We've been together for more than 20 years, married for 15. She is my one and only notch on the bedpost, mainly because we were both awkward nerds growing up, didn't start looking for relationships until we were in our 20s. When I was in high school, and other boys would be looking at uh, Penthouse and Hustler, I was reading Nancy Friday, smugly thinking that I was so smart for learning about female sexual fantasies. Truth is, the books were hotter than the magazines, but I did hope there'd be a payoff down the road. My wife and I have great chemistry in the bedroom, intense orgasms, but aside from the inevitable frequency issue now that we have kids, my biggest disappointment in my life of monogamy is that I'm paired with someone who says she's never, ever had a fantasy. I've shared mine, sometimes in writing, and my wife says she really enjoys the intimacy of knowing what I imagine. She says her brain basically shuts down when she masturbates or when we have sex, and that she doesn't think about sexual things on her own unless I bring them up. I imagine that the most fulfilling fantasy of all would be to make my lover's fantasies come true. I've had sex with my wife's body, and it's great, but I feel like I've never had sex with her mind. Is there a way I can encourage her to develop an erotic imagination? 
she thinks it isn't important. And despite the explosion of erotica written by women for women, insists that most female brains are not wired to have fantasies the way men's are. I'd appreciate any advice you can offer. Thanks, Dan. Sometimes you listen to men or you get calls from men uh, whose wives are anorgasmic or girlfriends, they can't come. And the girlfriend or the wife enjoys sex, enjoys the intimacy, uh, is an enthusiastic sex partner, and they have a regular uh, and engaged and engaging and mutually fulfilling sex life. And the guy is just devastated and can't let go of the fact that he can't make her come. And that she's not coming and you know he's so invested in her pleasure and this is so important to him. And it can ruin their sex life for him to just hammer away at this and, and push and push and push as if the orgasm, uh, which for whatever reason she is incapable of and does not miss, isn't happening. And the focus on what's not there and what isn't happening – destroys in the end because the woman winds up feeling bullied and shamed and inadequate. It winds up destroying what is there, right? A good sexual connection, intimacy, a good partnership, fun in the sack because the guy is just so obsessed about this one missing piece. And I'm talking about you know a situation where the woman is anorgasmic, enjoys sex, doesn't – it isn't a problem for her that she can't – Climax, but it's a problem for him, right? If it's a problem for her and they want to work on it together and a lot of women do, that's awesome. Yay. You're doing that but with fantasies taking the place of uh, elusive orgasms. That she doesn't have that sort of inner fantasy life that you do doesn't mean she's damaged. It doesn't mean that you're being denied anything and you're losing sight of what you do have. Together 20 years, married 15, you have kids and you have good and regular and loving and fun sex with your partner still and it's fulfilling and you're going to make a huge issue out of what? Out of the fact that when she masturbates, she goes to kind of a neutral place that's all about the physical sensations and the pleasure she takes from them. That when she has sex with you, she kind of goes to the same place. She's not a blank. She's tapped into you physically. She's enjoying the physical, tactile, touch, experience, connection, all of it. And where do you think all that's going on? That, that pleasure that she's deriving from the, the touch and the intimacy, all that's going on in her brain. You are having sex with her brain. You're not having sex with a fiction that she can spool out of her brain for your entertainment. But you're having sex with her brain. All those nerves run up to the brain. So when you're eating her pussy and she's loving it, it's like her pussy's having a good time and the rest of her is asleep. Her pussy's having a good time because her brain is having a good time. Her pussy and brain are co-engaged in that moment together. So leave it alone. You've, you've put it on the table. Like I've shared my fantasies. Who knows? Maybe she'll come into her own in a few years as so many women, middle-aged women did with the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomena. She'll suddenly happen on something. Something will cross her path that will inspire all sorts of fantasies where none existed before or they were so buried by shame or whatever that she couldn't tap into them. And in the meantime, just fucking enjoy her and enjoy it and share your fantasies. There are a lot of people out there in good and loving relationships where one person is the instigator and one person is the elaborate sort of fantasy generator, the doer, the, 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 the person who makes the plans and lays it out and the other person is an enthusiastic partner 
and is happy to have found that person who is Julie the Cruise director around sex, which is a reference to a 70s television show and I just flew over the head of most of you listening. Google it. So in that way, you guys are good together. If she's into your fantasies, it doesn't shame you because of them, wants to help you realize them, you're winning. You're winning marital sex. You are. You're doing really well and you shouldn't shame her back for not having fantasies of her own at this time. That would be a mistake because in the end, that will cost you what you do have. And again, what you do have sounds pretty great. So focus on that and don't focus on this. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm actually a previous caller and you answered my question as of today's podcast, actually. Um, and I wanted to call and give you a follow-up. That I'm, I'm the caller who um, I was in a poly relationship and I'm the secondary and I wanted to meet the wife and she didn't want to meet me. And, uh, you know, I thought it was unfair, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks for your very firm response. Um, however, I did meet his wife recently and um, it was amazing. We spent like three or four hours having drinks. We got on very well. We've been texting ever since. I feel a lot better about my relationship with him. I feel better in general as a person. I feel like this is truly what I wanted, and um, this is my version of Polly, and I have it, and all three parties are happy and comfortable, happier. She's happier. I'm happier. And I was wrong about the fact that I would not like her, and I was wrong actually in my intentions of pushing her out of her comfort zone because I realized all along I did want to meet her and be a part of their relationship in some way, um, feel included, I should say. So I just wanted to give a follow-up and let you know that I met um, my partner's wife and it went exceedingly well. We're actually going to make drinks a regular thing. And um, I guess I wanted a happy ending to the Polly story for your listeners. If you publish this, you know that it can work and it works for me, even though it was a lot of trials and tribulations, um, and a lot of misguided communication. And, um, so yeah, thanks Dan for responding to my first question. I just wanted to let you know that things were resolved in the best way possible. Thank you for your call. And you were wrong. And it was very gracious of you not to point out that I was wrong too. I had impugned your motives and said that you shouldn't meet your boyfriend's wife because because of what you said about wanting to make her uncomfortable or drag her outside her comfort zone. And I just it just was a red flag for me a bunch of motives. But clearly your motives were pure and I was wrong. And I'm playing your call just because it makes it clear as I like to remind people every once in a while that this is advice. It is not binding arbitration. Nobody has to do what I tell them to do. I think in almost all cases people should do what I tell them to do. But there are rare cases where the caller should ignore me and do the opposite of what I've told them to do. And yours was one of them. So uh, I appreciate the call. I'm glad things worked out. I'm glad that my hunch about you and your motives was obviously in error and that you're all having a wonderful and happy poly time. And thanks for your call. Regarding the male caller who called to say that he wants relationships with bisexual women because he likes threesomes, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's part of the reason why so many bisexuals don't come out. Because not every bisexual woman is going to want to be looked at as, oh, you're bisexual? Goody, you'll bring me women to fuck. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to episode 390, and the gentleman who had the fantasy uh, with his African-American boyfriend, he wanted him to be a thug. Uh, I'm not gay, but I am straight, and I have, I'm an African-American male who doesn't 
fit a lot of those stereotypes. And I've dated a couple of folks interracially. And I got to say, if a girl I was dating asked me to play out that stereotype, I would probably break up. Uh, you gave him really good, really sensitive advice, but I think somebody's got to say, and I can't be the only caller that say it, says it, your fantasy's kind of racist. And there's good news and bad news. You asked if it was different than someone asking their Asian girlfriend to dress up as a geisha. The good news is it is no different. The bad news is they're both kind of racist. Hi, I'm just calling to say that I have lived with herpes for more than 25 years, and it's no big deal. The only stress it causes me is that it reminds me of the piece-of-shit boyfriend I had before I met my husband, who I am pretty sure knew that he had herpes but wanted to have sex anyway. I guess I would rather live with herpes than live in terror of getting herpes. So get over it. Don't worry about it. And we're going to leave it there. Before we go, though, I want to say thank you to all the new subscribers, everyone out there who bought their all-access passes monthly, six-monthly, or 12-monthly at savagelovecast.com. We appreciate all the Magnum subscribers. We also appreciate all the micro-listeners. Thanks, everybody out there in the Savage Lovecast family. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. A reminder, there is a comment thread at the bottom of every show at savagelovecast.com. So if there's something you just have to get off your chest and at length and with links and whatever else you want, you can go to savagelovecast.com and leave your comments on each and every show. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Kate Monroe, author of Losing It, on Twitter at Kate, M-O-N-R-O, 2. That's Kate Monroe, numeral 2. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.